Okay, turn to Acts 22 today, either on the back of the bulletin or in your Bibles. Let's pray. Father, will you shine the light of your face on us as we behold you in the word of your Son, Jesus Christ, inspired by your Holy Spirit, for your glory and our joy in you. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Today we'll read Acts 22, 22 through 23, 11. Remember that Paul is... Uh, here at the end of uh, 22 is the end of his speech before uh, the mob on the Temple Mount and they're uh, listening to him give a defense of himself and the gospel and then Luke records for us in 22, 22 up to this word they listened to him then they raised their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. Those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? 
And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid of that Paul would be torn into pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I mentioned last week this history that Luke is giving to us uh, of Luke and Acts combined is being rounded out here at the end with Paul's defense of the gospel. And he kind of gives five defenses. And this represents the second of his five defenses. Um, But we notice right off the bat, this is not a normal defense of the gospel. This is a, a, a not a normal apologetic this story presents. In Paul's first defense, standing on the steps of the fortress Antonia, the fortress connected to the temple, um, he's standing before the the mob of angry Jews on the temple mount, and he's telling them about his encounter that he's had with the risen, ascended Christ, and how he had called Paul to gospel ministry. And Paul spoke in unambiguous terms that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was God and that he was risen from the dead and ascended and that he was the Messiah and that Jesus had called Paul to leave these stiff-necked people in Jerusalem and to go on a mission to the Gentile nations. And they were willing to listen to Paul up to that point until he said, God sent me to the Gentiles. And then that's when we read this in verse 22. Up to this word, they listen to him. Then they throw a huge fit. They throw dirt in the air. They take off their robes. They start shouting, away with such a fellow from the earth. We can imagine then how the tribune would have felt. The tribune was in charge of roughly a thousand Roman soldiers here at the Fortress Antonia. Probably 600 or so stationed there at the time. But his primary job is to keep the peace, especially keep the peace on the Temple Mount. And here is this great riotous crowd brewing. So the poor tribune, he doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't speak probably the Aramaic dialect that Paul was speaking in. So he doesn't know why the crowd is so angry at Paul. And so he turns to kind of a a familiar uh, method. To, to find out what's going on. And he has to do this because he has to get this crowd under control soon or his career and possibly his head will be on the chopping block. So he turns to this, this method of, of flogging to find out what's going on here. And flogging is, is just a handle with leather strips with, with bone and metal in it. And it was used to whip people. Um, this is what Jesus endured. And in fact, interestingly, Jesus was probably stretched for flogging in the same place at the Fortress Antonia as Jesus was. Roman law uh, prohibited citizens from being flogged, particularly uncondemned citizens. There were a couple of laws. The Porcian and Valerian laws protected these untried uh, Roman citizens from, from humiliating or shameful punishments like flogging or crucifixion. 
Cicero said, It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To flog him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide, which means murder of a family member. So that's how seriously Romans took this, this, these edicts. This little interchange between Paul and the Tribune here serves to kind of societally rank them. Because to be a citizen by birth is really more respectable than to be a citizen by purchase. Because it's not like he he went down and and just bought his citizenship at the citizenship store. This was a bribe. He he bribed somebody to, to become a citizen with a large sum. So it shocks the Tribune. Um, that this man who after all was he initially thought was an Egyptian uh, renegade and then he he sees him speaking in Aramaic dialect or the Hebrew dialect to to the people it's a surprise to him that he would call himself a Roman citizen especially since Paul had mentioned that he was a citizen of Tarsus but neglected to mention he was also a citizen of Rome now why Paul waits to tell him this well, we'll have to ask Paul in heaven, because I, as soon as I was arrested, I would be saying Roman citizen, Roman citizen. This is not the first time either that Paul waited in Philippi. He waited until after he and Silas were beaten with rods and thrown in prison to then let them know that he was a Roman citizen. But we do know this. We don't know why exactly, but we know that Paul was very shrewd. And by waiting until he was already bound and stretched, um, he's able to leverage the tribune's mistake and his fear against him. We've seen this shrewdness of Paul many times in Acts, and we'll see kind of a master course on, on shrewdness through this passage. And his shrewdness serves as a different kind of defense, a different kind of apologetic for the gospel. This scene also powerfully illustrates for Theophilus, who is the, the recipient of this letter, uh, the innocence of Paul. Remember, Silas, or, uh, Theophilus is probably concerned to some degree about this Christian movement. He doesn't know what to make of it. Is it, is it going to cause a ruckus? Is it going to be a threat to the Roman Empire? And so this proves once again, as it does throughout, that this Paul, or, Paul is innocent. Throughout this history of Luke and Acts, people are always scheming and plotting and and prejudging Jesus and his disciples. And they are often unjustly turning to to plots and murderous uh, tactics to try to be rid of Jesus and his apostles, his disciples. And here, yet again, though the tribune will execute a severe punishment against Paul without doing his due diligence, without trial, without even asking about Paul's citizenship, This tribune is proven to be foolish. That's another theme we see through Acts. The opponents of the gospel are foolish. So he's embarrassed and Paul's innocence is demonstrated to us and to Theophilus. And Paul gains the momentum here. This is important for us because as Christians, if we're going to one of our primary apologetics is to be innocent before our enemies. This was one of the primary apologetic methods used very on in the early apologists was to say, look, we're good citizens. We're good people. And so if we're going to use that apologetic, we first have to 
be innocent before them. Now, despite being embarrassed, the tribune still has a job to do. He still needs to know what's going on. And so he calls the Sanhedrin together for this ad hoc meeting. And he says, figure this out. Why are you accusing this man? It's not a formal trial, but a sort of pre-trial, a religious trial. And even this, I think, is meant to be a mockery because it sort of demonstrates that they're upset and they don't know what they're upset about. You're accusing Paul. Figure out why you're accusing him. It's a little backwards there. There is a genuineness and a sincerity in Paul as he begins to address the Sanhedrin. He's ready yet again to offer another cogent defense before them to try to show them, to convince them that the gospel is true. That, the, that, that his gospel is the outflow of their shared, rich covenantal history. And so it says he looks at them intently and he calls them brothers. He says, I've been living before God, my life before God, the same God, the God of our fathers. And through all of this, through all the change and odd disruption that the new covenant has brought, that trip the, all, all of the ministry to the Gentiles through all of this, I have done so with a clear conscience. My conscience is clear before our God, the God of our fathers. Despite his sincerity, his defense is cut short by Ananias. He says, strike him on the mouth, which indicates he thinks what Paul is saying is something profane. Again, a little bit of an echo of Jesus' trial where Jesus was struck by the Roman soldiers. And Paul here, he responds very strongly to this. Um, And we've seen him react this strongly a few times in Philippi. There's a demon-possessed girl following him, annoying him, crying out. And he finally gets frustrated. Luke says he got so annoyed that he cast out the demon. Another time on Cyprus against Elymas, the magician, in chapter 13. Luke says that Paul was filled with the Spirit, and he says to Elymas, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. So in a similar vein, Paul says to Ananias in verse 2, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. And actually, these proved not to be hollow words, but prophetic words, because Ananias was murdered only a few years later by his own people. Um, And and this this image of a, a whitewashed wall is just... A wall that's decrepit or is a shoddy craftsmanship, you can cover that with a a thin layer of lime, white lime, and it makes it look good. It makes it look firm and strong. So he's saying, you're a hypocrite. You're judging me according to the law and you're breaking the law by calling on them to slap me in the face. says in verse 4 that those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. There's two basic views on 
Paul's response here. The first is that Paul sort of is speaking ironically or sarcastically. Like, oh, I didn't realize someone like that could possibly be the high priest. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the scriptures say, do not revile the ruler of your people, of which, of course, Ananias is such a fine exemplar. He's being sarcastic. The second view is that Paul may have, in fact, overextended himself in frustration and genuinely did not realize who the high priest was. There's many reasons why he may not have known. Um, He didn't live in the age of social media where you can look up the high priest's picture on the Internet. There had been a lot of changeover in the priesthood, and Paul had been gone. He'd been away. Um, And since this was an impromptu meeting, he may not have been in the typical garb that he would have been otherwise. And so Paul, though not wrong in this view, Um, in the content of his rebuke, is willing to admit his error. And he quotes Exodus 22, 28, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Although there's part of me that wants it to be the former, the sarcastic view, because it's kind of like, stick it to him, Paul, you know. And it's a well-supported view. Augustine, Calvin both thought this, but I lean toward the latter for a few reasons. The first is that the former seems to be a more plain reading of the text. Occam's razor is generally a good principle of interpretation. Secondly, it seems to be out of character for Paul to engage in, in this sort of argumentation of sarcasm, especially considering that this whole passage is demonstrating his shrewdness. Would he then stoop to, to insult and sarcasm? Particularly, we've seen him over and over again trying to demonstrate that he views them as his people, that they stand in the same biblical historical tradition. So I think he would still view the high priest as a ruler of his people, even if he does not think Ananias serves well in the office. Thirdly, I think that there's a clear contrast here being set up between belligerent Jews and, and the gospel messenger. And I think that this would probably contradict that otherwise. Um, And then fourthly, I doubt that the Pharisees would be quite so amiable in verse 9 if he had been really rude uh, to the high priest when they say, "We, we find nothing wrong with this man. Well, they may have if Paul had been acting that way. So if this interpretation is correct, then it sets an amazing example for us of how to behave as Christian witnesses. Like David, who bent over backwards to show honor to Saul. Paul desires to show respect to the high priest. And Paul is, he's so in the right in this situation. And yet, he doesn't hesitate to, in that situation, admit his own mistake. Which is tiny in comparison to the injustice he is receiving. So it's very much like Romans 12, 17 through 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that promise is an amazing promise. I will repay because it enables patience within us, because it's not as though we don't want or deserve justice for the injustices done to us, but we have patience because we know they will be taken care of. 
God will vindicate. So this is the kind of shrewd warfare that we need in an excellent defense of the gospel. One that speaks plainly with humility to even admit our own faults. Now, I'm sure Paul would have loved to have proceeded in a straightforward uh, presentation of his case for the gospel. Uh, But Ananias here has altered the course of his apologetic. And he can see this 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 meeting is not going anywhere. So Calvin uh, points out, I think, well, he says that essentially his tactic now is to, to blow the trumpets and smash the jars, letting the Midianites kill each other. In six through ten here, and he recognizes that his enemies are enemies with each other, and so he plays them off each other. Again, in another shrewd move, he says, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Um, so Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead um, in, in the broader sense, that one day we will all be resurrected from the dead. They see that hope in Scripture. Um, and Sadducees were very rigid interpreters of Scripture and were unconvinced that they, you could defend resurrection from the Scriptures. So they did not believe in it. Um, scholarship is unsettled about what is meant exactly by they didn't believe in spirits and angels because even in the Pentateuch where the, the, the Sadducees were fervent believers of, you see angels there. And so this should be a qualified statement somewhat And probably in my view, it's related to the intermediate state or the time between when you die and when you go to heaven. Um, And they didn't believe that that spirits lived on after death, which makes some sense. I think of the Pharisees comment in verse nine. What if an angel or a spirit spoke to him? What if somebody did from the other side communicate with him? But if the Pharisees here say, uh, there's no way this whole story is a falsehood. Paul is full of baloney. Uh, they may find themselves in a position of being compromised in their position in a long-standing debate or fight with the Sadducees. Which, again, that debate in this context goes far beyond just mere theological disagreement, but engages a strong political current in Judea. So some of them are starting to say, well, let's slow down here. Let's think about this. It's certainly theoretically possible that someone could have come and and spoken to him. And Paul does have a degree of pharisaical credibility. And some here, it says, even go as far to contend sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? The disagreement then becomes so volatile that the tribune has to kind of whisk Paul away and just so he's not torn limb from limb. And the poor tribune, despite all his best efforts, still has no answers as to what's going on here. And what's amazing to me is that Paul, even though he's in this sort of sham of a trial, even though he's clearly casting his pearls before swine at this point, he recognizes that sort of poking the hornet's nest will be an efficient way to to bring the proceedings to an end. 
And yet, through all of this, he manages to bear witness to the very heart of the gospel and to point people to Christ. For him, it's not about debates. It's not about the political pandering or anything like that. It all comes back to the centrality of the resurrection of Christ. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. So his argument here is, is essentially just in a nutshell what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be, be, be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's what he's saying is, if Christ has not been raised, if I didn't see him, then my apostleship is a sham. The whole gospel is pointless. And our whole hope about being, being saved from our sins is, is shot through. And it always comes back to this for Paul. This was his tactic in Athens, in Corinth, here in Jerusalem. The resurrection stands as the heart of his apologetic because it is the heart of his hope. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, his apostleship is valid. The apostolic gospel is valid. His faith is valid. The hope of our resurrection, our future resurrection with Christ is valid. So I wonder, to what degree does the resurrection stand at the heart of our own apologetic and our own hope? Because the more we find hope in the resurrection, the more we'll share it as the hope that is within us. Somebody asks you, why do you believe what you believe? Which nobody asks, which would be nice if they just asked, wouldn't it? But they might ask, well, why don't you support a women's right to choose? Or something like that. Well, well, you could respond and this would throw them for a loop. Well, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. And? If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the, the whole Christian faith is validated. And therefore, I believe that every person is made in the image of God from the moment of conception. And that that tiny, tiny human body is precious in the sight of God, so much so that if it were to die today, it would be raised in the resurrection. And if that little person has faith in Jesus, he'll be raised to eternal life in the presence of God. And I'm really looking forward to spending eternity with him. So the resurrection has practical import. It, it tells us about our hope. Without a living Jesus, we just have another man-made ethic. No foundation. 
So it's true in one sense, the whole of our faith is also on trial with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. At this point in the story, Paul has got to be doing some calculation, some projection in his head. And he's this is very familiar. This this story is looking familiar, violent rejection by the Jews in the hands of Roman officials who are very confused about what's going on and what to do. Uh, The threat of flogging being struck while on trial. This 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 is looking a lot like Jesus story. He may be wondering, is this the end of the line? Will my story end sort of poetically, just like my Savior's with me on a cross outside the city? But we read in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So. The story's not yet done. Paul's mission is not yet done. He's saying, no, this is not the end of the line for you, Paul. You have more to do. And just like that first time when I came to you and visited you in the temple, Jerusalem is not your mission. The Gentile nations are your mission. You will go to Rome. So this is the second great defense of the gospel, a bit unorthodox. But we learn a lot about Paul's apologetic here and the shrewd way in which he deals with those around him. So I just want to uh, close today with uh, with prayer. Father, I ask you to teach us, like Paul, to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And may we learn to bear faithful witness to our Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who does live and who reigns on high. And may we find our hope in the promise that we will one day follow him into resurrection life because we put our faith and our hope in him. And may that hope animate the defenses that we make of the hope that is in us. Amen.